Thanks for downloading this podcast from Burghead Free Church in Murray, Scotland. We exist to know Jesus and make Jesus known. Our vision is to grow to be a vibrant all-age church of 100 disciples. Find out more at burgheadfreechurch.org. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke, spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save a life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them. And a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Well, you've probably heard of Brian Eno. Eno was born in 1948. He's a famous British musician record producer and artist. Uh, Brian Eno has spent his life in creative environments, usually in recording studios with musicians, helping them to be imaginative and creative. Now to help with this creative process, Brian Eno collaborated with a colleague to produce something called Oblique Strategies. Oblique Strategies is a set of cards, about the size of playing cards, and written on each of the cards in the pack is a random, counterintuitive, or unexpected suggestion. 
things like use an old idea or only one element of each kind or ask yourself what your closest friend would do. Now, maybe it sounds a bit strange, but the point of these cards is that if you as, a, as an artist or a musician hit a kind of creative block, you pull out a card at random and you follow its advice. And sometimes he reckons that those creative blocks can be overcome by doing something random and unexpected. Sometimes that unlocks new creative possibilities. And if you're interested, you can buy a pack of these cards on Brian Eno's website for the bargain basement price of 50 pounds for a pack of cards. There you go. Now, I mention all of that because we've reached a point in the Gospel of Mark where things take an unexpected turn, at least as far as the disciples are concerned. To them, it seems as if Jesus has just pulled a random card out of the deck and taken things off in a strange, unexpected, and wrong direction. Of course, the reality could not be further from that. The point of this whole section of Mark is to show us clearly that the direction of travel that Jesus sets is not strange, it's not random, it's not wrong. No, instead it is the preordained plan and pattern for Jesus. And actually, the direction he sets is also the pattern for our lives as well, if we're going to follow him. If you're a bit lost in all of that, Let's get our bearings just by reading from Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Now, at this point, as readers, we're, we're kind of celebrating because after eight long chapters of fear and doubt and misunderstanding, the disciples, or Peter at least, they seem to have got it at last. In many ways, these first eight chapters of Mark's gospel have been all about Jesus' identity. Who is he? He's God's Messiah. And now, finally... Peter has got that. Or has he? Read on. Chapter 8, verse 31. Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So it becomes very clear, very quickly, that Peter's understanding of what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah is still away from being complete. He's still not got it, not really. And we've reached our first point tonight. You'll see it on your sheet, on the screen as well. Jesus, suffering, service. The sentence must have seemed so strange and incongruous to Peter. 
Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. Now that title, Son of Man, would have been very familiar to these disciples. And not only because Jesus often uses it to refer to himself. Sometimes we forget that these disciples were brought up as good Jewish boys to know the Old Testament scriptures. And they would probably have known the Old Testament scriptures a good deal better than we might do today. And so when they heard those words, that title, Son of Man, in their minds they would have been transported back to the Old Testament book of Daniel and to chapter 7, to be precise. Have a look there. Daniel 7, verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All the nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So to the disciples, that, that title, Son of Man, well, was a divine title. As far as they were concerned, from the book of Daniel, the Son of Man was going to come in power and majesty and bring a glorious victory. He would rule as a king. And so there was no space at all in their thinking for the idea that, that the Son of Man would come to suffer or that this great victory he came to bring would be won through suffering. They cannot understand how the path to glory can also be the path to the cross. To them, this just seems bizarre and wrong. And Peter, classic foot in the mouth Peter, Peter tells Jesus exactly what he thinks of this idea. He begins to rebuke Jesus, which is quite a thing to do when you think about it. See how he responds. Verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at the disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, I guess you know those words pretty well, but just stop and think about them. Jesus is astonishingly severe in his rebuke of Peter. He calls Peter Satan. And the point, I think, is to impress upon Peter and us what's at stake here. See, the cross, the suffering he would endure on the cross, that is at the heart of Jesus' mission. And so to, to oppose the way of suffering, to oppose the way of the cross, to say that the cross is, is unnecessary or inappropriate for Jesus is actually to do the work of Satan. Because you see, the very opposite is true. The cross is the centerpiece of Mark's gospel. It's the centerpiece of Jesus' ministry. The cross is the centerpiece of our faith. Satan wants to bind the truth of the gospel. He doesn't want people to understand the cross. The forces of evil are opposed to all that Jesus achieves on, on the cross. Remember as well that Jesus has been in conflict with Satan and his demons throughout the gospel. 
Jesus rebukes Peter and effectively calls him Satan, and that reveals to us what a conflict there is here. Satan hates the cross, but Jesus knows he's heading to the cross. And so for us as well today, as we try to preach the cross and share the gospel that centers on the cross, we would do well to remember that we also are in a spiritual battle. Satan does not want your friends and family and neighbors and colleagues and all the rest. He does not want them to come to know of the cross where Christ goes to pay for sin so he can welcome sinners back into the arms of God. There's a spiritual battle. And you see that in this whole section of Mark, not just in the details of of what Jesus says, but also in the structure, in the big picture that Mark is showing us here. He's showing us that, that the Messiah, Jesus, is a Messiah who has come to suffer. And he shows us that even in the way he puts his material together. So there are two big points now in the gospel. We've just had the first of them. G, uh, Peter's confession of Christ. That moment at the end of uh, chapter 8, uh, chapter eight, verse 31, where Peter says, yes, you are the Christ. But it becomes very quickly clear that he doesn't actually understand what that means. The next major point is towards the end of the gospel. Do you remember the centurion who watches Jesus die on the cross and says, surely this man was the son of God. There the centurion recognizes Jesus is the Messiah and he, unlike Peter, understands that he's a suffering Messiah who's come to the cross. That's the big structure now. We're working between those two points now in Mark's gospel and between there you have three major what are called passion predictions moments when Jesus explains or reiterates that he's heading to the cross you can look them up later if you want chapter 8 verse 31 to 33 chapter 9 verse 30 to 32 and chapter 10 verses 32 to 34 so even the structure is showing us we're leading to a point of understanding that Jesus is a messiah who's come to suffer But for the disciples, and maybe for us, sometimes it takes us a while to understand that. And so there's something else in the structure of Mark's gospel. In in this clever way, he's put his material together to help us see that. You remember, not long ago, back in chapter 8, we've had the gradual healing of the blind man at Bethsaida. Remember that unique miracle? Virtually all of Jesus' other miracles happened instantly, but his sight is restored gradually. And it's a bit like Peter, isn't it? He's come to understand something of Jesus, but there's a gradual process. And we're heading from that miracle to another miracle of sight in chapter 10, verses 46 to 52, which is the healing of blind Bartimaeus, and he is healed instantly. And so again, do you see Mark is showing us in the structure that there is a process going on for the disciples, perhaps for us as well, as we journey through the gospel of having our sight corrected, of coming to see and understand, yes, that Jesus is the Messiah, but that Jesus is a Messiah who must suffer, who is heading to the cross to achieve the salvation of his people. And all of that is summarized in what is possibly the key verse in all of Mark's gospel. Chapter 10, 
verse 45. Even the Son of Man, there's that title again, did not come to be served but to serve. How did he do that? By giving his life as a ransom for many. So there's a process here of coming to see that Jesus is a suffering Messiah. But there's something more as well. Mark is showing us that if we want to follow Jesus, if we want to have him as our Savior and Lord, well then suffering must be the way of life for us as well. One commentator puts it this way. The bulk of the material here is focused on the cost of following Jesus. Mark gives us seven cameos in his picture of the true follower of Jesus. That's what we're going to cover today and over the next few weeks. The section is also structured around three statements about Jesus' death and resurrection. These statements are critically important. First, to keep our eyes on Jesus, because Mark's gospel is primarily about him. But second, here it is, to show us that our lives of suffering and service are patterned on Jesus. He does not ask anything of us he has not done himself. And that leads us to our second point today. We've seen Jesus' suffering service, but now, number two, our suffering service. Read on, verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now, here's another well-known verse, and we tend to jump straight into the bit about denying yourself and taking up your cross. Well, we'll get to that in a moment, but for now, just notice how it begins. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said. The point is, Jesus wants everyone to hear this. This is not just a little private word in the ear of the disciples. This is a public broadcast to everyone who's present. And the point is, there's only one way to be a Christian. That there's only one path through the Christian life. This applies to us all. It's not just for the disciples, not just for the keen beans, it's not just for those who are particularly spiritually active. No, no. If any of us want to follow Jesus as our saviour, it will mean suffering. It meant suffering for Jesus, walking the way of the cross, and for everyone who follows him. In some way or other, it will mean suffering too. That's the way of Jesus. Now, Jesus calls us, if you look closely, to do two things here. Firstly, to deny ourselves. That's a kind of radical reversal of the way we live. It's getting rid of the idea of me and my way, of me being the center of my life. Instead, it's making God and others the center of my life. Servant-hearted living looks to the interests of others as well as the glory of God. And of course, isn't that what Jesus himself did? At great cost to himself, he went to the cross. Why? For the benefit of others and the glory of God. Again, one commentator puts it this way. When I am no longer driven by my ambitions, 
But when my ambitions become devoted to God and to others, then I am an effective disciple of Jesus. So firstly, we are called to deny ourselves, but secondly, to take up our cross. Now, to take up your cross does not literally mean to take up a cross as Jesus did, although we should remember that for many Christians around the world, opposition and persecution and even hostility and violence are a way of life. That is what they suffer. Being a Christian may literally cost you your life. But taking up your cross certainly means obedience to Jesus' word, including this word, this call to suffer in the service of the gospel. Now, of course, the absolutely massive elephant in the room here, the big question that hangs over this whole thing is, is it worth it? Jesus is telling us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow after him, which will bring us suffering. Now, you might well listen into that and think, really? Doesn't sound like a particularly good deal. Is it worth it? Well, that's exactly where Jesus goes next to answer that question. Verse 35. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Jesus is saying, you might gain any number of things in life. You might devote yourself to building a great business or having a load of money. You might devote yourself to any number of pursuits. But if you are indifferent to God, you'll get to the end of your life and find it has been wasted. And worse than that, you will lose your soul to everlasting judgment. And if that weren't serious enough, Jesus adds more just to press the point home. Verse 37, what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? The point is, if we say no to Jesus now, if we will not have him as our savior and king now, well then when we face him on judgment day, What will we give him? What will we offer him in exchange for our soul? Will we say to him, oh, oh, look, Lord, here's my reputation, or here are the possessions I've amassed in life, or or, here is my religious pedigree, I went to church a lot. No, all of that will count for nothing. There's nothing you can offer to God. No, the only thing that we will take from this life that truly counts is a soul that is secure in Jesus or not. On that day when you meet Jesus face to face, it will not matter how big the business is that you have built. You cannot offer him that in exchange for your soul. What will matter, the one thing that really matters, is have you received him? And believed in him as your saviour? Have you lived with him as your Lord? And Jesus presses home even further, another stark warning to make things all the clearer. We carry on, verse 38 now. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in the Father's glory with his holy angels. 
Well, we've seen Jesus' suffering service. We've seen our suffering service. But now things take another perhaps unexpected turn in Mark's gospel. So number three, Jesus' glory revealed. Read on, chapter 9, verse 1 now. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. Now when he says that, Jesus is referring to what is about to happen next, what we call the transfiguration. So read on. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Now, if this, if this is new to you, you might think, what on earth is going on? Well, I won't say this very often, but let me say now, Harry Potter can help us. Now, in Harry Potter, you will have come across something, if you've read the books or seen the films, called Transfiguration. Now, transfiguration, as far as I remember from Harry Potter, is about becoming something you're not. Transforming yourself to be a cat or something when you're really a human. Now, that helps us because what happens here in Mark's gospel is exactly the opposite of that. Rather than Jesus becoming something he's not, no, no, this is a true revelation, a true picture of the glory that Jesus really has. A revelation of that glory. Notice as well who Jesus takes up the mountain. It's not all the disciples, it's just Peter, James, and John. And as you read on in Mark's gospel, you'll see Jesus' wisdom here. Because those three are the three who are clearly struggling the most with this idea that Jesus is a suffering servant. We've seen Peter already putting his foot in it and saying, no, Lord, I rebuke you, you mustn't, you mustn't suffer. Later on, we'll see James and John um, jockeying for position in Jesus' kingdom. They too are clearly struggling with this idea that to follow Jesus is to go the path of, suffer of suffering and of service. So it's a great kindness of Jesus that he takes these three, the three who are especially struggling, up the mountain to show them more. Now, you might ask, what's all this stuff about Moses and Elijah? Why do we see them appearing here? Well, Moses and Elijah represent, in a sense, the Old Testament. They represent the law and the prophets. And that was a common way in, in, in speech of summarizing the whole Testament. You talked about the law and the prophets. The law given through Moses and Elijah, perhaps the greatest or at least the best known of all the prophets. And these two come to testify to the glory of Jesus. And then after a while, they fade away into the background and Jesus is left alone. Which is a sign that the law and the prophets, all of it points to Jesus, but he's the ultimate revelation of God himself. So read on, Mark chapter 9, verse 5 now. Here's Peter again. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi... It is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Now, I really do love Peter. What's going on here? Is he just misunderstanding again? Well, yes, I think there's some truth in that. Is he just 
saying something silly, you know, the first silly thing that comes into his head, probably there's something of that going on here as well. And listen, let's be honest, haven't we all done that? In a moment where we didn't know what to say, we just said something stupid. We've all been there. But I think there's something a little bit more deeper here. This whole scene has echoes of Mount Sinai. Remember when Moses went up the mountain to meet with God? Saw his glory? There's also echoes of God coming to tabernacle amongst his people. Remember as the people traveled in the wilderness, they they had the tent which was the tabernacle, the, the shelter if you like, which was the place of God's presence. And then later in the land in Jerusalem, the temple, the place of God's presence. Maybe Peter is thinking, oh, perhaps this is like the Old Testament. Jesus is here and Moses and Elijah. Maybe God is, is going to kind of come and dwell in a building again, something like that. And so we need to build some shelters. If that's what Peter's thinking, this whole episode should say to him, no, 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 no. We don't need a tabernacle anymore. We don't need a temple anymore. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. In Jesus, God has come truly to dwell with his people. Anyway, all of that's important. But the most important, the most significant thing we see here in this whole little episode called the Transfiguration is actually the voice of God that we hear from heaven. So read on now, verse 7. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my son, whom I love, listen to him. Now those words might sound a bit familiar. Remember back at Jesus' baptism, we heard a voice from heaven that said something very, very similar. The baptism, I suppose you you could call that the commissioning of Jesus. But there the voice of God said, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. But here at the transfiguration, which I suppose you could call, not the commissioning of Jesus now, but maybe the commissioning of the disciples, the voice comes to them and says, this is my son. And then listen to him. That is the big command here. Listen to him. Listen to him. To Jesus. Now, of course, these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, are struggling to do just that. Peter will not listen when Jesus says he's a Messiah who's come to suffer. Later on, James and John will not listen when Jesus says to them, The way to follow me is to follow in this way of suffering and service. They want status. And so the word comes to them just as it comes to us. Listen to Jesus. And that's the question for us tonight as well. Will you listen to Jesus? Especially on this subject of suffering. When Jesus says to us, if you want to follow me, it will cost you. If you really want me as your savior and your Lord... It will mean following in my steps and taking up the cross, obeying the Father as I did, enduring suffering as I did, denying yourself as I did. 
living for the sake of others and for the glory of God, just as I did. The question is, will we listen to Jesus when he says that's what it means to follow him? So the question is, what what will happen now? They've had a voice from heaven, literally, telling them to listen to Jesus. Will they suddenly do that? Will they suddenly understand? Well, not yet. We'll see another example of the same kind of reaction we've seen from them in the past. Instead of faith and understanding, again, we'll see more fear and misunderstanding. And that's our final point, point number four. Fear and misunderstanding. Read on now, chapter 9, verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. This little exchange shows that there's so much yet that the disciples don't understand. Jesus tells them to keep quiet about the transfiguration they've just seen, Not, I think, because it's some great secret, but because they just haven't understood it yet. And if they go blabbing about it, all they'll do is spread misconceptions, because they still don't understand. Clearly, we've seen they don't understand why Jesus must suffer. We see here they still don't understand what it means for Jesus to rise from the dead. There's also confusion over Elijah John the Baptist, of course, we've seen this already. John the Baptist is the Elijah figure who prepares the way for Jesus. And interestingly enough, John the Baptist also was led away into suffering and death as he honored God. So there's lots of misunderstanding amongst the disciples at this point. And there may well be many misunderstandings in our own minds The key question is, what will we do with our misunderstandings? Will we have our thinking corrected by Jesus? Are we willing to listen to Jesus? Those three key words are the three most important words in this part of Mark. Listen to him. Listen to him. And listen to him especially when he says things which are hard for us to hear, like suffering is the way. That if we want to follow Jesus, if we want to have him as our savior and our Lord, then suffering is the way. That means denying ourselves, turning from sin, turning to Christ, taking up our cross, following the way of suffering to serve others and glorify God. Is it worth it? It is more than worth it. But the way of Jesus is the way of the cross. That's true for him. It will be true for us as well. Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to listen to Jesus. 
Heavenly Father, the cross is so dear and precious to us. We thank you that your son went for our sake to suffer and die for our sin so we could be forgiven and washed and drawn into your family. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to see that the cross is not only the means of salvation, but the pattern for the Christian life. And so we pray that you would help us, those who trust in Christ, who have received the gift of forgiveness, one at the cross, now to walk in the way of the cross, to deny ourselves, to be willing to embrace hardship for the sake of others and the glory of your name. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. Please feel free to share this podcast. And if you'd like to be up to date with each week's talk, why not search Burkhead Free Church on your favorite podcast app and hit the subscribe button. For more information, go to burkheadfreechurch.org.